So for the last couple of weeks, um, after church on Sunday, I've had people come up to me and say, dude, you went so short. Like, like now you're mad at me that I went short. Um, and I thought, well, there's a reason the last couple of Sundays were a little bit more brief. I was storing up minutes for today, all right? So, so you know, going into this, like, I hope you brought a sack lunch or a five-hour energy or whatever, because uh, this is going to be a long one. Um, but, but by design, because we're covering a lot of turf uh, in this particular message on warrior, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. We're going to get into a lot of things this morning. But, but I want to start by saying I do believe we live in unique times. Uh, I, I think we live in very unique times culturally. I think we live in a particular place in the country that offers us some insight into those unique times. Because if you looked at a, a map of the country around the political season, you'll see a lot of red... And then these pockets of blue, right? And, and don't look at that as Republican and Democrat necessarily. I mean, you can do that, and that's kind of what it communicates. But that also communicates another reality, which is where you find those pockets of blue, uh, they drive a lot of where the country's going, right? As far as just kind of like the mindset of the country. They seem to control a lot of what happens politically in the country. But those blue sections are blue because what you have there is density, and when you have density, you have a lot of thought converging on one place, and the only way at times that people feel they can get along in those dense locations is everything just sort of gets muddied. Convictions become less, opinions are more celebrated, and so it's just generically a little bit more kind of ebb and flow when it comes to cultural norms, right? That's what makes the blue, blue. It's really less about politics, it's more about what's culturally acceptable, unacceptable, we all have to get along, so we all just kind of blow over conviction, right? So that's how we have this unique experience as a people in this culture, and that is very different than maybe what we've seen historically as Americans. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with then how we see things like truth, how we see authority, how we see this idea of religion and spirituality. All of those things are sort of suspect in the current culture where there was a time that there was this idea or attitude that certain things were fixed, that there was just truths to be discovered or found, right? I mean, there was this time, in fact... Um, my master's degree, it's a theology degree, but it has an emphasis in philosophy and apologetics. And when I took those classes, the way they were taught was under the assumption that everybody in American culture believed that there was some reality to be discovered, there was some truth to be located, there was some kind of scientific principle that everybody could agree on if we could discover it. So when you were dealing with apologetics as far as how to reach somebody for Christ, you would argue from this perspective of everybody probably believing there was some truth out there. Are we going to be able to discover that together or not? Right? That was kind of the idea. In the current climate, it's changed. And people aren't so much committed to the idea that there may be a truth out there. In fact, a lot of people increasingly deny the fact that there may be one truth. But there are several truths, maybe even contradictory. doesn't matter as long as I'm sincere. I hold my belief with conviction. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's true or not true. It's just the, the one I like. It's the one I want. So uh, we're, we're, we're increasingly what people would call a pagan environment. See, when I was growing up and when I was training for ministry, the big foe of the future was atheism. 
right? So you would go to seminars and workshops on the dangers of, of evolution from atheists and how they're going to strip all of our kids of their belief in God, and that was the big problem, and that was the thing we had to worry about. But if you look around nowadays, atheism isn't terribly popular. Paganism is highly popular. Whatever religious idea I like is mine, whatever spiritual ideals I hold to, they're mine, whether they're consistent or non-consistent, doesn't matter. It's just all sort of opinion that seizes the day. Because we live in this environment that is very much about tolerance and pluralism and all these fancy words, which at their core erode an idea that you can land on a singular truth that is binding for all. Right? I don't know of many in the room that would probably disagree with that assessment. Now, what that has to do with this morning uh, is that idea has inadvertently bled itself even into the church and probably at a lot of levels the level i'm thinking about this morning is how it's affected even our our idea or our view of how the church operates and functions see a lot of times when people think about church they think about styles of church right and styles of church there's all kinds of styles right i mean you've got the you're a victor church right you got that one uh, you got the hellfire and damnation church, and there's that style, and we're not that. Um, we're also not the, you're a victor, um, we're not that. Um, you know, you, you've got the black gospel church, and man, I wish I could do that. Um, I would love that with the dude on the organ, and you know, bah, 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 you know, like, Jesus, you know, I'd love that, but I'm white. Um, so, right, I am so white, when I jumped, you're like, three inches vertical that's all he had um yeah so you got that style of church uh, you got the church that every sunday you come and they tell you how to have a good marriage how to have good money how to have good parenting and then they duplicate the cycle so it's about good advice giving you have that style of church you have churches like redemption which are focused on kind of missional theologians and that's our style right there's all kinds of styles i'm not here to judge the styles all right that that's not the focus uh, what the focus is, is to say that regardless of style, because style is a tool, style changes, right? There was a time where traditional with an organ was hip, right? And the traditionalists couldn't stand the organ. They thought it was a tool of Satan, which is awesome today. Um, you know, but that's what they thought, right? But style changed, and style now is electric guitars and drums. And everything. Style changes. Computers, and style changes. But there is still embedded into the New Testament, the belief that substance counts, right? Regardless of style, regardless of the type of church you want to look like, there is some things in the New Testament that says all churches should fight for and hold to things of substance. In other words, it's not just enough to say, you know what, if you're sincere, and you're committed, and you're passionate, and people are being reached, and there are high numbers, that that is good enough. It's not just if you throw Jesus on the marquee at some point, that that's good enough. There are these truths in the New Testament that says there are ways that churches operate and do not operate. There's things that they are to fight for, and other things are allowed to blow off. See, those things actually really matter because at the core, Jesus, he came for the church, he died for the church, he rose for the church, he builds the church, and he's the guy that gets to say, this is how I want my church to operate. And we don't have the freedom to say, well, but I want it to operate differently. No, I don't have that freedom. If he says, this is how I want my church to operate, this is how he wants his church to operate. And so we want to take those things seriously. In fact, when you go through the New Testament, you will see Paul, 
you will see James, you will see John, you will see Peter, and you will see Jesus confront the local church. Right? Even Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 confronts the local church. And he says, you guys are not focusing on right substance. He's not concerned about style, but he is concerned about the substance factor. And so we want to take that seriously to say, all right, the things that Jesus wants of his church, we want as well. We don't want to just kind of settle into saying whatever works is good enough regardless of the substance issues, right? So the warrior church matters. It matters, right? Because there's two things about church that are true. There is our, basically our mission, and then there's our priority. As a local church, our mission is to take the gospel to those who don't know Jesus, right? That's the mission. But the priority is the worship of God, right? And so that's why substance matters. How Jesus wired it matters. It isn't just that we get it done, but at times he cares about how we get it done. It would be like if my son was going to mow the lawn, and I said to my son, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to weed whack around the perimeter. After that, I want you to take the mower around the perimeter, and then I want you to do straight lines after that. And I come home and I find that he weed whacked and he mowed, but he didn't do lines, he didn't do the outer perimeter, and he weed whacked last. Right? I would be like, you did it all, but not the way I asked you to do it. Right? And, and, and so it would matter. So it matters here. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this at the end of what we're going to look at this morning. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, substance matters. How the church operates matters. What he's about to say, right? All of what he's about to say that leads up to that verse is going to matter at some level. Now, we're going to look at all of that this morning, and it's going to be as fun as a trip to the dentist for a root canal. So, um, buckle up. All right, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Is that not like the most exciting introduction you can think of? You're like, all right, Seahawks kick off at 1. That's all i got to focus on. All right, so... Um, that's all I got to know. No, this is going to be good. It's going to be good. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Now, last week we opened up to uh, the book of 1 Timothy. We looked at chapter 1, and we saw that we need to guard the gospel and fight for the gospel because the gospel is the one thing that changes everything. The gospel changes lives. Nothing else changes lives but God invading the heart, taking out sin, putting in righteousness. That changes lives. So, Paul says you've got to fight for that message and guard that message. So, then he goes into chapter 2. Verse 1, and he says, first of all, then, based on guarding the gospel, based on the importance of the church holding to the message that changes everything, here is how you are to act and live. He says, first of all, then, based on the gospel, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions. Now, he, he says this, and I think about how things translate for us. Uh, let, me, let me lay out the problem, the cultural environment, um, and the cultural environment uh, that, that, that is faced. Um, there is sex trafficking, right? Those are some of the problems. There's abortion. There's gays in the military. There's inequality. There's racism. 
there's a heavily taxed middle class, rising poverty, a nation with economic instability, there is unbridled spiritualism, foreign military engagements, the loss of the ideals of the republic. Those were all the problems in Ephesus in the first century. Right? We act like there's nothing new, right? or there is something new for us, but everybody else it wasn't so new. No, it's always the same. The problems of life are always going to be the same. And so, as Paul is writing this, and he's writing to how do Christians deal with their politicians, and how do Christians deal with their culture, those were their problems. Right? Nothing new. And so, what is the solution to the problems? Is it that we should go and picket? Is it that we should go and protest? Is it that we go and, and get different politicians? No, his solution is you pray. I mean, I love this because um, it, it gets to the root issue. Because here's what I have discovered being a Christian for a very long time. Uh, we all tout prayer, but we don't really believe it changes things. I mean, not really. We believe a lot of other things change things. You see it in our passions. You see it in our frustrations. You see it in what has to happen to save everything. It's not often around like the political season that churches say, we just want to come together and pray. They don't do that. Not really. They go, how can I put something on Facebook to win all of my friends? Right. So that's what they do. Or we put up signs or protests or whatever but, but Paul, he's brilliant. He says, man, the key is to pray. Like, it really gets things done. I, I don't want to think that because we love to do more than we like to stop. We like to engage more than we like to do this thing that seems like, well, come on, does that, what is that really going to do? Nobody hears your prayers. What's up, God? Um, right? But, but we think it's not effective. It's not activist enough. But you go back to Paul's environment. He wasn't dealing with a good king. He wasn't dealing with authorities that were pro-Christianity. Right? There was plenty of opposition to go around. It was only going to increase. The city officials at best were indifferent. But Paul knows the way forward is to be praying for your leaders. And so you just think about that where it's like, okay, so let me get this straight. Uh, as a Christian, what my focus should be, if I want to see uh, city government and Duval change, pray. Have you seen our city government? You know, like, yes, pray. Uh, or we want Olympia to pray. King County. You're like, not salvageable. No. <laughs> pray. Right? It, it, there's power in that. Right? You look at the federal government. It doesn't even matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. We have Republicans and Democrats in this room. That doesn't matter. What we should do is pray because I don't know either side thinking like it works. We should pray. And you go, I am praying. I am praying that they lose. No, that's not what I'm encouraging to pray. I mean, you might. I'm not going to tell you not to. But, but no, notice I, Paul's heart here is, 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 is much more supportive than oppositional. right? To lift them up in prayer. To pray that they have, have God's wisdom, God's heart, and that many of them would come to Jesus Christ. That's what they need. Notice he also says in there, thankfulness thanksgiving for your rulers and leaders and authority, right? What that means for some of us is we need to say, Jesus, thank you for President Obama, right? I, you, you have to get it out, right? You have to get it out. Thank you for Speaker Bonner, all right? You got to get it out and say thank you. 
right? And you, you do that because, again, you're, you're believing that God is active, not passive, that God isn't just listening and, and not engaging. We have to believe that prayer actually changes things, that prayer actually matters, that we want to come together and do that because we actually want to make the, the biggest difference possible, right? That's the biggest difference. Now, does that mean you don't engage at any other level? Not saying that. Paul utilized his citizenship, he, he leveraged his citizenship at different times for the sake of the gospel. So you can be in the process, you can be in the system, you can run for politics, all that's great. But don't lose sight of the fact that the most important thing we do as it relates to our world is we pray for our world. We pray for it. I mean, that makes a huge difference, right? We can't change all the environment um, but we can ask God to begin to do that change. And there's something, too, about when you're praying for somebody that you oppose, that the more you pray for them, the more you don't oppose them in spirit. The more they don't eat you up inside, the more they don't frustrate you. I mean, I see that it doesn't matter. Every political cycle, I watch people get so eaten up by politics, lose all joy, lose all peace, lose all contentment. It's just a fixation, right? And, and man, when you're praying for whomever, is in leadership, whoever's in power, your heart begins to soften to that person because you want God's best for them. You want God's best. Now, is that the sole reason we do this, just to pray for God's best for them? Well, Paul goes on. He says, the reason we pray for kings and all people and all those in high positions is so that we might live or lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There is a personal benefit to us when we pray for our leaders. There is. Right? It's not just purely a spiritual thing. There's another dynamic. Because when we say, you know what, I'm going to be more focused on praying for you than fighting against you. I'm going to speak words of encouragement more than hostility. When I don't need power, I don't care who has the power because God's on the throne and he has ultimate power. When we're there, you know what, then we're not opposition in the way that the world knows opposition. We're not. And so it's more peaceful for us. And in that peacefulness, we have more opportunity than to share the gospel. Where Jesus is the offense, not all the other things, right? And that's critical. Because sometimes in the history of evangelicalism in the last 50 years, we've been known for being loud more than we've been known for being quiet, right? We've been more antagonistic than maybe peaceful, known for our criticism more than our worshipfulness. Maybe we have the sense of moral superiority as opposed to profound humility. And so the world kind of looked at that and said, man, uh, evangelicals are judged more by those tones than a repentant, humble group of people that just want to get a good message out that Jesus saves. Right? Now, I know it's not so clean. I'm not trying to pretend it's clean. This whole message, it's not clean. It only gets tougher. Um, but it's a direction for us. It's a direction. And so Paul knows the direction, right? This is how we act. This is how we pray. This is how we do. This is how we influence. In fact, in verse 3, he says, this is good. He says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. If we say, I just want to please God, right? Well, then he says, here's your recipe, 
right? And he's writing to the church. Man, here's how you please God. When it's tough and rough and your culture's coming apart and the wheels are off the wagon, you pray and you seek peace and you be an encouragement and be thankful because that changes things. The early church did not have a vote. The early church did not have a political base. The early church did not have an inroad to power. What they had was they prayed and they preached and they accepted the role of the persecuted and they had passion toward God and it changed their culture. It changed the culture. Right? Those are the tools of change. More than that, they are the tools that please our God and Savior. Keep the big idea in mind. Verse 4, he is the one who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the goal, right? That's what God wants. And we need to want what God wants. And I'll be honest, I'm sitting there looking at all of this, and I'm like, what God wants and I want are not always the same thing, Right? What I want is rights, what he wants is righteousness. What I want is freedom, what he wants is followers. What I want is security, what he wants is sanctity. What I want is comfort, he wants conversion. We want wealth, he wants worshipers. We want accumulation, he wants adoration. We want smooth sailing, he wants soul seekers. That's what he seeks here, right? And this message that we bring, this gospel that we protect, this church on movement, right? The message is simple, right? He desires all to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And this is why I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He says, I'm telling the truth and I am not lying as a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's what I love about this. Um, Paul gets it right back to the gospel message, and it is an elitist message. It's exclusive. I mean, just look at it, right? There's one God, there's one mediator, that's Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, even though Paul's in this very plural environment, even though it's highly pagan, even though there are thousands of gods that riddle the environment... Paul says, you know what, you can't escape that this part of the truth really matters. And you're not going to be able to soft sell that one. There's a lot of other things you can do to blend into culture and it isn't wrong. But the thing you can't do is water down the exclusive message of Jesus. You you can't do that. You, You do that and you've lost everything. Now you're just having a business called church and you get a lot of people to give a lot of money to do a lot of things and God isn't pleased. So so Paul gets right back to the center. He says, what does the warrior church look like? It prays, prays, and it believes. It believes in this exclusive message that there is one God, one way, and one Savior who has made it possible. The cool thing about that exclusive message is that it is highly inclusive to all who would come to Christ. Right? He desires that all kinds of men be saved. Um, go back to chapter 1. Paul says, uh, this message came also to me, the chief of sinners. Right? So it's an exclusive message. Jesus is the only way. It's inclusive. All who come can be saved through Jesus. doesn't matter how bad you are. doesn't matter how broken, how much baggage you've accumulated in life. He'll take anybody. Right? Anybody. He likes bikers and he likes ballerinas. Junkies and jocks, twerkers, whatever they are. Um, 
right? It's just in the news. I had to ask my kids, I'm like, okay, I'm so old, I don't know what that is. And they're like, you want us to show you a video? No. Um, but Jesus wants him. He wants him. All kinds, white collar and blue collar and no collar at all. Jesus wants the homeless and he wants the wealthy and he wants, he wants them all through this exclusive message that he is the way. And so Paul makes much of this for the church and he says, don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the purpose of the church. To pray, to preach with passion and if necessary, receive persecution knowing that even persecution with humility upholds the message even more. That message is so important to me. It's okay that you don't like me, because I know you don't like my Jesus. right? And so that's how we hold it, and so that's what Paul knows. And so he's encouraging the church. Now, how does the church do this? Are there specific things in the context of the church as they uphold the gospel and they uphold prayer that they're supposed to do? Yeah, and he begins to speak to different groups in the church about how they live and what they do and how they do it. So he starts in verse 8, and he speaks to the men. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now we look there and we go, every place. What does he mean by every place? Does that mean after church, all you men go to Estapa and you, Jesus, right? And you're like, I'm I'm sorry, Jesus, I meant Jesus. Um, Jesus, do you do that? You're like, is he allowed to say that? Yes, I am. All right. Is that what it means? In every place where you go to lunch, where you go to dinner, you're at the Department of Motor Vehicles. No, no, this word every place, he's talking about in the context of the church. Not that men shouldn't pray elsewhere. But when men come into the context of the church, regroups, Sunday morning, wherever else, we should be men who pray. Who pray. And and see, this is a hard one i found over the years. As soon as a church says, hey, we're starting a prayer group. A lot of men in their mind go, that must be a women's ministry thing, right? I don't mean that in, I mean, you chuckle. I don't mean it that way. I mean, it's kind of the way that it sort of gets processed. Like, like guys don't go out of their way for a prayer group. We go out of our way for like, uh, we're, you know, we're cutting down a bunch of limbs and cleaning up a yard, or we're going to build a building, or we're going to help you know, people change their oil in the community. We rally to that. When we say prayer, there's this thing that men are like, oh, it's not my thing. I'm a doer. I'm a doer. See, this is one of those things that Paul knows, man. The health and effectiveness of a church is going to be measured by the prayerfulness of their men. Right? The prayerfulness of their men. As a church, we have different venues to pray. Sunday morning at 9 a.m. back here in the, the, the music room, there's an opportunity to pray. Wednesday mornings from 6.30 to 7.20, we have an opportunity down at the hub to pray. Right? Men should pray. It's powerful when men pray, right? Pray for your wife, pray for your kids, pray for your witness, pray for your purity, pray for your church, pray for the lost, pray, right? Because Paul knows when there is a church of men who are actually committed to the task and the joy of prayer, the enemy freaks out. Satan cannot stand prayer because it taps supernatural power, not just our natural resolve, right? So he's saying, pray. More than that, he says, pray, lifting holy hands. There's probably a literal part of this, and there's probably a figurative part. The literal part is, man, lift your hands, right? I mean, there you are, 12th row, Sunday morning of redemption, music's playing, hands firmly in the pockets. Most dudes. This is how I worship. 
you know, maybe, maybe thumbs are going, right? Like, that's it. So that's 12th row here. If you're 12th man at the game, though, what happens? <laughs> right? Right? You physically molest a stranger next to you, right? For a touchdown. You're like, yeah, bah, bah, bah. I don't even know you, but nice firm butt. Right? Ah! right? That's what you do. Because it's six points. Right? Yeah, I know. Hey, Internet. All right, so. Yeah. It's like, he, he molested a totally invisible man on stage on Sunday. All right, so. But that's what we do. Why? Because we're jacked up excited. Right? But when it comes to Jesus, we even sing the songs. Lord, I lift my hands on high uh, in my pockets. Right? So, like, right? So Paul says, man, lift your hands. Lift your hands and engage. And maybe you go, man, I'm not there. That's why we pray. We pray to engage. And when we're engaged, we get excited about the Jesus that we serve. So he says, man, lift your hands. But they're holy hands. And figuratively, it means, you know, man, we need holy hands. Right? What we do, how we act, how we handle our spouse and our kids and our thought life and our technology and our other relationships, holy. Be uncommon, set apart, be different, is what Paul says. goes on to say, not only lifting your holy hands, but doing so without anger or quarreling. This is hard. This is like our two favorite pastimes as men. I'm like, I don't even know. Anger and quarreling. Like, how do we conquer that? You know, well, that, that's part of the challenge, right? Where we're trying to figure out, all right, how can I be more peaceable? How do I not have to play devil's advocate all the time? I don't have to stir up everything when we have a family barbecue. It's not my job, right? I want to work toward that because Paul says, man, that makes for a powerful and strong church, he says, men, know how to pray, praise, purify, and please God. Then he goes to the ladies, verse 9. He says, likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, right now, I'm sure there's a couple of people getting their email out, you know, like, uh, dear Gloria Allred, listen to this. Um, don't do that. But we're going to traverse some interesting territory here in a minute. Now, when this verse comes up, just this first part right here, the first thing that comes up is people go, well, is that cultural for them or is that normative for all? Cultural or normative? The answer, yes. All right, so how do we get there, Right? How do we deal with that? Well, let me, let me try to give you an understanding of, of how the New Testament works a lot of times, especially Paul, the way he builds arguments. So what Paul loves to do is to start with a theological principle, right? Here's just something true, and then he'll then sandwich it with another idea, which is now here's this cultural aspect that you're dealing with, and then he comes back to the principle that would be transcendent over any number of cultures. So if we look at our passage really quick. The big idea, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That's just kind of a truth. That would be like Paul's truth. Then he says, now, for you Ephesians, here's a cultural dilemma that you face, right? This idea of braided hair, gold pearls, or costly attire. That's your cultural principle. Informed by the transcendent principle. So he then says, principle, your cultural issue. And then he goes back to the principle. What is proper for women who profess godliness 
with good works. Now, let's look at that middle cultural principle. Why would we be able to say that's a cultural principle? It doesn't necessarily have to transcend for us today, so you don't have to start going, here's my rings, here's my, you know, right? You don't have to do that. Here's why. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, or, or 1 Peter 3, rather, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about uh, the outward adorning of women, and he doesn't say they shouldn't do it. He says, don't merely do that. So for Peter's cultural crowd, not a problem, all right? Um, you see in Revelation 21, the bride of Christ is heavily adorned. Jesus is all about having an or, uh, adorned bride, not a problem. Um, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The situation there is very different than Ephesians, right? And their issue is about head covering. Paul doesn't care here about head covering there. Uh, it's a different issue. So there are cultural things from culture to culture that highlight or maybe even transgress theological problems. So that's, that is safely cultural. But the truths remain, Right? The truths are, should all women who love Jesus say, I want to be respectable in my apparel. I want to be modest. I want to be self-controlled. I want to profess godliness with good works in a proper way. The answer is yes. You find those things elsewhere in the Bible. Those are values to hold. Values to cherish. Now, in one culture, those values are going to play out culturally different than in another culture. And there's going to be things that culturally happen that are obviously against those values, and that's what sometimes has to be challenged or corrected or made aware of, right? So if we look at this, we go, let's say you plant a church in Papua New Guinea. Um, well, there, topless in Papua New Guinea, cultural standard. It's not like they're immodest for that. You might need to encourage modesty in the tribes at a completely different level. But it's not, hey, here's a church t-shirt. That isn't necessarily the solve. It may not even be the issue because in that culture, it doesn't matter that they run around topless. That's very different than Pompton, New Jersey, all right? Like, you go to Pompton, New Jersey, topless has a problem, all right? Um, not the same in Papua New Guinea. And so culture can drive some of it, but the truths remain. Right? So the truths here are, again, what is great for women to do? Think in terms of, hey, I want to be respectable in my apparel, modest, self-controlled, I want to profess godliness, and be proper in those things. Right? So, so there, there's two aspects to this. One is just being aware that within our culture, there are some things that are suggestive or sexual or whatever else that, that again, godly women should go, I, I care about being sensitive to that. Right? I want to be kind of self-aware, because that is, that's a good thing. Now, I'm not here to draw those lines. That happens too often in the church. We start deciding, uh, we're going to apply your morality to you. That's not the heart behind it, but it is saying, what are you trying to call attention to? Right? That, that would be the bigger question for our ladies. What am I trying to call attention to? Right? So one aspect is just probably the sexual purity part. The other aspect is, forget whether it's even sexual, because here, this isn't so much sexual. I mean, this is about braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. He's not dealing with a sexual overtone, but he is dealing with an attention-grabbing overtone, right? When that's there, it's just hard to focus. For example, I've got a way to uh, articulate this. I'm not going to show you anything, gee. But if I preach the rest of the sermon like this. And I rolled in every Sunday, yeah, man, and I did this, 
You know what you would do Sunday after Sunday? You say, I don't know what he said. I couldn't get my eyes off the ears, man. I, I, I'm just, I'm riveted by the do, right? And, and you wouldn't catch anything else. And that's what Paul's dealing with. Now I'm going to mess up my bald head. All right, so um, that's what Paul's dealing with right there, right? It's, he's saying, you know what? You, you, don't make it a calling attention to yourself, right? Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. My wife's like, right there, honey. That, see, that's a good wife. Is that good, honey, or is it still just checking? Teamwork. All right. So, see, she's getting high fives even for that. Yeah. Right. So that is the thing. So Paul's saying, you know, here's the whole thing. Men, pray, praise, holiness, women, modesty. It's not about you, men. It's not about you, women. It's all about Jesus when we come together. Right. And so that's Paul's encouragement for the church. He says it to men. He says it to women. And then he continues his discussion with women in verse 11. He says, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the way I'd like to get started with this is... I can sense this is going to go well. Um, like right now, like, danger, Will Robinson, misogynist from the planet sexist. All right, so um, we're going to break this down really slowly. Let me tell you, the coolest thing about going through a book of the Bible verse for verse is you can't run from the verses, right? So we don't get to run from it. We get to plow right into it. And wow, it's already 39 minutes into the message, halfway. All right, so maybe. All right, we're going to find out. So, let's break this down a little bit more slowly. So, we're going to slow it down. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12, right, where it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, for I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, the, the, the trick here, when, when this comes up, is that so often when it comes up, the very first thing that, that gets said here is cultural, 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 right? And so, people start running around saying that's a cultural passage. The question is first... I, I don't disagree, it's cultural. Every bit of the Bible, at some level, is cultural. The question is, what was the culture? Because we can assume upon the environment of Ephesus a culture that may not really be the culture that was there. So let me take you quickly through the culture of Ephesus, the location of this letter that, that Paul sends to Timothy in Ephesus, right? So Ephesus, their god in Ephesus is a goddess, right? It's uh, Artemis or Diana, so their deity is a female deity. Right? Uh, the second thing is that the city of Ephesus was founded literally by what they called Amazon women. So its founders were women. And then if you went to the temple of Artemis and you were to see the religious leaders, they were female priestesses. So when we talk about the culture of Ephesus, we have to be clear that it was not a culture that had opposition to female religious leadership. 
Female religious leadership was the norm in Ephesus. I say that because sometimes people go, oh, well, women were held down, and you know the Jewish culture was this toward women. I'm like, that's true. If you sailed over the Mediterranean and you went to the place where the Israelites had landed and were now under Roman control, they had opinions about women that were different than the opinions of Ephesus. This is no different than if you're over here in Seattle and you drive down to Louisiana, you will find very different opinions on a lot of things. Just because you have some proximity and you're under one leadership rule politically doesn't mean those cultures have the same values and ideas on a lot of things. So don't assume Judaism on Ephesus because it doesn't exist. Right? So it wasn't that there was any opposition to females in religious circles. That was very common in Ephesus. That's the first thing. Second thing people will say was, well, sure, maybe that's true, but Paul, the misogynistic poop that he was, um, he, he would have had a view to kind of subject women so that they couldn't be involved. But if you look at Paul's track record, that's not the track record you see in Paul. You you see Paul in the Corinthian environment, which had different problems than the Ephesian environment, saying there that women and men have equal authority over one another's bodies. That would have been really crazy egalitarian. right? So Paul, not necessarily the sexist that he sometimes gets claimed to be. Uh, Paul would have been the guy that says, hey men, Sacrifice for your wives, like Christ did for the church. Lay yourself down. That, that was pretty advanced thinking, forward thinking for the, for the man that he was. Um, uh, there was other things, too, where he actually it, it just told men flat out, you need fidelity because you're treating your wife poorly when you don't. And that is not fair or right or godly or wholesome or manly. Right? So Paul, also, the writer, not some sexist guy. You, you just, it's hard to claim that record for Paul. And it's hard to find the Ephesian environment as this anti-female crowd, right? But what this passage is doing, what Paul is trying to get at with this and with the church, is that God's design for men and women matter to God. They matter to God. So he's bringing this whole thing up, saying God designed with intention, he designed with purpose, and in your environment, you need to honor that intent and that purpose. Because somehow the wheels had come off the wagon a little bit, and he needed to get them back on track. So he says honor design. Now part of the honoring of this design is because we have a God who is three persons, one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are the makers of the design and they honor the design. Right? The Father receives all glory, worship, adoration, and praise. The Son comes into the world and what does He do? He submits Himself. He sacrifices Himself. He gives Himself and He does the will of the Father. He points to the Father. He gives all glory to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit, he comes around and he gives adoration to the Son and adoration to the Father. You know who doesn't get a lot of adoration? Holy Spirit. Now, they're all three God, but they all serve role and function and design, right? And then when Father, Son, and Spirit decided to create men, women, and marriage, those things all facilitate that design. They all commemorate that design. So as Paul is writing this, this is more his focus than, than us getting all bogged down in bias versus beauty here. I mean, it's like we kind of look at this and go, whoa, wait, wait, that isn't popular today. Oh, see, that is just, that's control. That's putting women under thumb. That's not Paul's heart in writing to Timothy. It's just not. He, he says, I want to make sure that God's design is upheld. In fact, one of the coolest thing, things that Paul does uh, often when he deals with this uh, is he, he roots it in kind of these theological ideas. 
right? And, and he's going to hear because he's made these statements. This is what I do not permit. This is what I seek in relationship to women, and that has some relationship to men. This is what I seek. But it's not just my opinion, and it's not just culturally motivated. For Paul, it's theologically motivated. So when people say, that's what's cultural, I say, yes, it's just cultural, but the culture that it hails from are two nudists that owned a zoo, all right? Here's how. He roots it in Adam and Eve, all right? That's where he roots it. So he says, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. So Paul doesn't say because in Ephesus this or because in Israel that or because the Romans whatever. He just says, Here, here's the way God built it from the beginning. Adam and Eve. He, he had this whole design and this whole intention. And, and that's what we want to protect. More than getting into all the minutiae and the details about well, what can I do and what can I not do and what do you let women do at Redemption Church and all that. It's like, we just dig Jesus in design. Right? Because that's Paul's heart as well, digging Jesus, digging design. On top of this, you look at some of the, the, the words here, which in Christianity are, are very weighty and powerful words. It's weird, like in a text like this, we'll read the word submissiveness and on, almost only see it in a bad light. How bad submissive, submissiveness is. And I go, wow, that's weird, because you know what Jesus was really known for? Being submissive. It was one of his highest virtues. He submitted to the Father, he submitted to the authorities, he submitted his life unto death. Why we ever see submissiveness as a bad word misses the whole mark of the Jesus who modeled it as a powerful word. We rob the beauty of submissiveness when we get concerned about bias over beauty. Right? So that, that's, a, that's an amazing Christian word. Right? It is. Quietly. We go, <laughs> But isn't that Jesus' hallmark while he's before the trials and he's going to the cross? His silence is deafening. But we see it as, well, that's just another negative word. Even authority. Uh, authority in our world is power. Authority in the Bible is all about laying oneself down for the good of others. The reason you have authority is to sacrifice yourself for others. This isn't a power trip. It's just not a power trip. And it's not designed to say, you know, men are better than women. It's not, it doesn't do that. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not getting to that. That's not his essence and heart. He's saying design it brings glory to God. Design matters. And seeing that design played out in the church, it matters. And so he roots it way back to Adam and way back to Eve. And this is how God made it. And that's how God is glorified because it patterns and models who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's important. Now, what happens when that is lost? What happens when design is forfeited for any set of reasons? Verse 14. He says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. People will read that and go, Oh, see, just blaming the woman, right? It is out of house and home, right? No, it's not that either, right? That's not. What he's getting to is, yeah, when that happened in Eden, when Adam said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to choose to lead, I'm not going to choose to teach, I'm not going to choose to step in, um, Eve was well-intended. You go back and read the story, she's well-intended. Oh, you mean this is going to make us wise? Oh, this is going to make us knowledgeable? Oh, this is going to make us like God? This is a great idea. All right, and she goes to her husband. Instead of her husband saying, whoa, 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 just go put that back. Right? He, does, he stops leading. He abdicates his responsibility. Right? And so they partake together. All things come apart. And while here Paul says, you know what, this was the effect in, in this section, in Romans, he says, you want to know the effect, though, for Adam, the whole world became sinful. 
right? You, you look at the, the, the penalty in uh, Genesis 3, the, the woman, she's going to have pain in childbearing. Adam, the whole planet comes apart. The whole planet is thrown into chaos. All people will be born sinful through Adam, not through Eve. Right? Because they swapped roles and, and they didn't uphold design. And, and so again, that's what Paul is caring about here. More than all the minutia and the details, he's caring about design. And we should care about that too. You know, it, it, it's, if, if we care about what God cares about, then we care about how God made things. Right? That's what we care about. And so then, from this... He tries to give an encouragement, but women are going to be like, that's not an encouragement. He says, yet she'll be saved through childbearing. That's the encouragement. Um, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That word saved there has a lot of bandwidth. It can mean rescues or heals or redeems. Um, he's, he's talking about broad swath here, right? So he's like, God made man and then he made woman and they have this compatibility that works together as a knife and a fork and it's beautiful and when that gets inverted, it gets messy and it got messy and from that, the woman has pain and childbearing but the man brought sin to the entire planet and everybody faces hell at the beginning because of man. Man is much more blamed in the New Testament than, than anybody else. Adam is far more blamed than Eve ever is. You've got to get that clear. Men really screwed it up by not leading, right? Still happens today. Uh, and he says, but as women are engaged in childbearing, he means this generically, not specifically every single woman, but he means generically what they do in childbearing is they bring healing to and they work against the curse that Adam's brought into the world. Because you know what? Every mom and every woman that nurtures a child and shares the gospel with a child and brings spiritual encouragement to a child, she is, she is going directly against the curse that Adam brought into the world. You know, the old adage, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? That's the idea here. Paul's saying, you know what? Here's the powerful thing that women do. They bring to the table that, uh, you know, like to their kids and to other people's kids, uh, Jesus saves and Jesus loves you and Jesus is tender. And, and, and more people I meet that come to Christ at a young age say it was because mom sat me on the end of the bed and we prayed a prayer. It's really my dad. Right? So Paul is saying, man, there is still a complementarian role. And I know some people will look at this and say, well, um, that's not very glamorous. Maybe not, but it really is pretty glorious. It's pretty glorious. And Paul knows that. So he brings that encouragement. And he says, man, as a church, you pray. As a church, you bring the gospel to a lost culture. As a church, you come together, men with their calling, women with their calling, all compatible together for the glory of God. Again, if we get bogged down in too many details and what of this and what of that and blah, blah, blah and everything else, uh, we kind of miss the big arcing concept. Because that's the concept. Now, does that mean that the church is just this kind of hodgepodge of, of uh, pluralism and, and, and role and function? Well, no. Paul then gets into there are leadership issues in the church and there are leaders that are a part of leading the church and that's chapter 3. Chapter 3, right? Gets into elders and he gets into deacons and he gets into what all of that looks like. Now, I'm only going to take a minute on this because we've covered this ground before. So if you're new to Redemption Church and you go, I'd like to hear more about their view on elders and deacons, uh, there is a series we did called Essential. And we get into all of that in that series. And so you could listen to that, check it out. It's online, iTunes, everything else. Um, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail of this, with this, but I want to touch on it a little bit because I think it's still important to the text. Right? The foundation of the church actually begins with all of us praying, men and women understanding their role, function, and calling, and then from that it bleeds into this idea of elders and deacons. Now the elders in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. 
And there's a whole list of qualities. Some people call these qualifications. They're not qualifications, they're qualities. Right? We're not looking for elders in a church to be able to say, well, are you this, are you this, are you this, are you this, are you this? Okay, you have all the qualifications met, so you're good to go. These are dispositions, these are qualities. And you could take these three, or these, this list of things, and break them down into three basic parts. Moral qualities, domestic qualities, and spiritual qualities. Right? That that's what matters for the elders of a church, that these things count. And each of these things has weight. It's like, you know, those little, um, uh, they're like the, the pieces of art that you find on a desk, and, you know, it's like the dude pedaling his bike across the, the wire, and it's all balanced. The, the reason those balances work is because there's weight on the ends. And so an elder, these areas of quality have to be weighty in their life, right? Where it's just obvious, like, man, in the home, they're engaged. Uh, in their reputation, it's solid, right? Spiritually, they're deep. They love Jesus. They love to pray. They love their Bible. They love to serve. They love ministry. And it's just obviously weighty. That's to be true of every elder in a church. Now, some elders are volunteer. Some elders are paid, right? But they're all elders. In fact, in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 of 1 Timothy, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The reason I am a paid elder, or Pastor Scott is a paid elder, is because we have been identified as, as those who lead well, especially in preaching and teaching. We have Byron Smith, who's not a paid elder, but he's equally an elder, has the same authority as, as I do, or Scott does. That's the way it works. Tom Potter, equal authority. He's a volunteer lay elder. Uh, the paid elders just happen to be commissioned to lead full time. And so that's what we seek to do. And so you have this whole group of elders. There is no senior pastor at Redemption Church but Jesus. Right? He's the only senior pastor. In the New Testament, he's the only one that's ever called a senior pastor. All right? I do not have that title. I'm just a paid elder. Among other elders, some paid, some lay. doesn't matter whether we're paid or lay. We're all held to a very high standard. Verse 19 of chapter 5. It says, do not, commit, or do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Right? So what, what that means is as elders, we're just held to a higher standard. And if something happens in our life of a scandalous nature, you're going to hear about it regardless if we are repentant or unrepentant, you will hear about it. Because we're held to a high standard. And so it's a serious thing, this whole eldership deal in a church. So serious that Paul goes on to say, you know what? You want to make sure that you don't lay hands on an elder too quickly and take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He's like, don't be hasty with that. As a church, uh, if somebody here wants to even pursue the route of an elder, they have to take a one-year class and they have to go through a handful of interviews and a lot of assessment. We don't build elders here. The Holy Spirit does. We just acknowledge what the Holy Spirit has built. But it's a long process because of this right here. And leadership in the church and eldership, it's difficult. No wonder Paul told Timothy in verse 23, no longer drink only water but a little wine for your sake, for your stomach and your frequent elements. I'm like, elder meetings? Um, right? Like, it's sometimes tough. Right? To, to be an elder in a church, to see a church led everything else. But it is the church. And so it's taken seriously. There's also a group known as deacons. And deacons, it just means servant, and they also have 
moral qualities, domestic qualities, spiritual qualities, and they matter. Here's the deal at Redemption Church, right? Um, What we basically have is a group of men that are elders, a group of men and women that are deacons, and they all come together in meetings to understand where God is going as a church, to interact about what God is doing as a church, to seek to lead and guide and understand the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the life of the church. That's how we do it. And there may be some of you this morning, you go, and that's our last Sunday. Um, You know, I don't know. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Because again, our heart is to be complementarian, to recognize that there is roles and functions and there is complement in that, and we want God to be glorified in that complement. And we can get down into all the minutiae and all the details of all of it, but, but there's the heart and the spirit behind it. That's the heart, that's the spirit. And we do it all, why? Because of verse 14 again, the way Paul closes out the section, when he says, if I delay... I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Right? In the end, all of this is to hold the truth high, a pillar, to stand on the truth firm, which is a buttress, regardless of how popular or difficult that is. That is is our heart as a church. That is our heart. That's how we want to honor God and what we do. Because the message matters. Verse 16, the message is great indeed if we confess, since we confess, because of our confession, the mystery of godliness. It is great. What is it? He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That is our message. The church is his medium and messenger all for his glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your heart. We pray that we learn from you. And I pray for this morning is, again, there's probably even a lot of details we couldn't get into that. I'm, I'm looking going, man, I, another solid hour, we could have covered all the details. We don't have that. What we know is we shoot for the essence of your word, the spirit of your truth, that you would be held high. And so we look to you and we love you and we need you and we praise you in your awesome name. Amen.